0: Hello, this is Dr. James Rudd, Consulting Cardiologist from the University of Cambridge. And I'm at the British Cardiovascular Society meeting in Manchester for this edition of the Heart Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Rob Cassilly and his wife, uh, Dr. Marie Christelle Ross. Um, They both gave excellent uh, talks yesterday about their experiences uh, on Everest. Uh, Rob has uh, been lucky enough to climb Everest eight times. And uh, Mary Christelle is a cardiologist uh, who has a, an interest in high-altitude uh, medicine. And Rob is a general practitioner by training who also has significant experience of working on uh, Everest at base camp and also has featured in several uh, BBC documentaries, uh, most notably the Everest ER. So thanks very much indeed, both of you, for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks very much.
0: Um, I really enjoyed your your talks yesterday, particularly the videos, Rob, that you showed of uh, of, of climbing Everest. I must say, I came out with pretty sweaty palms, <laughs> particularly when you were crossing over the, the crevasse. Do you want to just perhaps set the scene a little bit in terms of what you've what you've done in the past? You've summited several times, is eight, is, that, is that correct?
1: That's right, eight, eight Everest summits uh, amongst other mountains and um, obviously Everest gets a lot more of the press than, than other mountains that, that have been on but uh, I was working as a house officer in Newcastle having trained up there and uh, went down to Bristol did an emergency job and, and before starting my demonstrating of anatomy job um, I realised that, that actually it, it had a neat little lead-in to perhaps taking some time out before a surgical rotation and... Um, and I, have as you just said, sub- subsequently become a GP. Um, but anyway, so I took a year out in the hope mm-hmm. of climbing Everest. And in 2003, uh, after climbing a number of different mountains, getting progressively higher, I ended up summiting for the first time. And mm. uh, it was a uh, proven, going to prove to be an attraction that I, I had difficulty putting putting down and, and leaving. And uh, you know, after subsequent years, I went back and summited a second time. And thereafter, I've been asked to. To guide and work as a medic uh, high up on the mountain uh, over subsequent years, so mm-hmm. it's uh, just by chance, not 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 prior planning. As so as something as you've you've fallen into almost exactly, yeah. yeah. I made a little niche for myself, which has yeah. worked out well.
0: And what are the, um, I guess apart from the obvious challenge of working as a as a medic um, in the Himalayas, I mean, what are the specific challenges that you um, expect to face? Should we say every season that you you go there? What what are the most common conditions that Uh, you'll be faced with in your uh, base camp clinic?
1: Well, I think that's a good question. I think uh, the the spectrum of illness would include sort of psychological uh, outcomes of being at altitude, away from family, home, uh, familiar surroundings, as well as the more obvious physical elements, which which we see increasingly at altitude. So the the, the main things you see are the kind of minor end of the spectrum, uh, acute mountain sickness, um, which is a a uh, hypoxic related uh, insult to the body uh, sort of fulminating and headache is the major symptom associated with a number of other symptoms mm. uh, um, ranging from you know gastrointestinal upset to uh, just general malaise fatigue you know and, and and the trouble with these kind of minor so called minor illnesses they can be the, the prelude to something more serious which would include either high altitude pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema and uh, and and really the the trick of the job is to try and ascertain whether this is something that's uh altitude related and one always has to presume the worst and, and relate related to the hypoxic conditions that you find yourself in mm. or whether this could be any other common uh, mm. ailment that you can get anywhere else in the world you know so if your stomach's upset in, in Nepal, that's not uncommon. And so, right, you know, right. really trying to tie everything together and, and always think of the worst and, and the, the consequences of getting it wrong. And so you you do take perhaps sometimes more conservative approaches uh, up there, particularly when you're remote as well. That's yeah. a, another issue that yeah. that rapidly comes into the decision-making
0: process. Because presumably you're quite far from a what we might call a, a Western-style hospital in Kathmandu. I mean, you're looking at helicopter evacuation, would that be right? Absolutely. In the most serious cases, and certainly what
1: Mary Crystal and I are seeing more and more often is that um, the the medics who are working for the Himalayan Rescue Association, which was a charitable organisation set up by an emergency rescue um, or sorry an emergency physician uh, from America, is that more and more um, standard Western approaches are being applied to uh, illness in a remote area. So more and more we're seeing helicopter evacuations for. The possibility that this could be high altitude cerebral edema, or the possibility that this is pulmonary edema, mm-hmm. and because we now have more access to to helicopter evacuation, it's led to increasingly improved care and definitive care for patients. It does kind of uh, raise a number of different issues in the sense that I would all, I would have said at the beginning of this podcast that I'm using battlefield medicine right. approaches to the, the the assessment and triage of patients like you might associate on the battlefield yes. yeah. because of the remote nature of where we are but but certainly in the advent of the last few years and, and helicopter um, accessibility with more powerful helicopters stripped down to be light therefore able to carry a casualty we are actually increasingly not being able to rely on the good samaritan right. battlefield medicine right. approach and actually take a lot more professional
0: approach to, to what we're doing nice. so uh, and that's what's changed, yeah. is it? So the helicopters Absolutely. have become more powerful. Because obviously I'm assuming with the thin air, it's hard to generate enough lift. Because you always used to hear it was pretty tricky to try to get even out of base camp. But you're saying now that that's much more commonplace.
1: Yeah. That's right. And, and we always used to depend upon Russian uh, large uh, twin-rotored um, uh, helicopters called MI, I think they're MI-8s or MI-7s, they've developed over the years, but right. they're from the, you know, the 1980s and they were formerly used in Afghanistan and they're now being used for United Nations uh, missions in, in, in Nepal in particular, that's where I've been seeing them. Um, but they had no, They were so heavy uh, that actually I've seen two crashes in 2003 and 2005 of those said helicopters in the base camp area. Trying to take
0: off,
1: presumably. Landing what and happened? taking off, they're so delicately balanced between not enough lift and not enough power uh, at that uh, altitude. So the the B3s and B2s, which are a kind of newer generation of helicopter, I think they're French-made um, they, uh, they, they actually tested them to the max by actually uh, claimed landing on the summit in 2005. And I remember being there, seeing it flying across Nupsi across Loetsey. So I have no doubt that actually this helicopter probably did put a skid down on the summit of Everest. And there's great video footage of it you can YouTube. Um, and so I suspect, you know, uh, they did. And, uh, and that's led to the advent of rescues now commonplace being t- occurring at Camp 1 and Camp 2 on the mountain.
0: Okay.
1: So high, high elevations.
0: So perhaps if I could uh, turn to you, Marie-Christelle, a little bit with your background in, in cardiology. Could you just maybe start by, by telling the audience the, the partial pressure of oxygen and the, the, the hypoxic conditions that you're dealing with, even in, let's say, the base camp of, of Everest? Yeah, no,
2: that's, that's a good question, actually. What happens at high altitude? Do we become hypoxic? As you know, and as everyone knows, the concentration of oxygen that we breathe remains the same, which is about twenty percent, twenty point eight percent of oxygen. Okay. However, the barometric pressure changes quite a lot with high altitude. So, the higher we go, the lower the pressure becomes. Uh, therefore, the inspired pressure of oxygen decreases at sea level. If we compare that to Base Camp of Everest, Base Camp of Everest is about 5,400 meters, and that represents half of the barometric pressure of sea level. Therefore, the concentration of oxygen that we breathe remains the same, but the pressure is half. Okay. So we become quite hypoxic. On the summit of Mount Everest, Which is 8,848 meters, it's about one third of sea level.
0: One third? Yeah. Okay.
2: So it's quite impressive the changes that we see. For example, my saturation at Everest Base Camp is about
0: 86 87%. And I'm assuming
2: you're a healthy adult. Yeah, yeah, no, I am. And it's totally normal at sea level. Yeah. And as soon as I start walking, the saturation decreases. And because we take 10, approximately 10 days to walk to base camp, it's a slow acclimatization. Therefore, we can tolerate such low saturation. But yeah, it's it's quite impressive when you look at someone's saturation Mm. at sea level, and we'd be extremely worried to have someone like that. But up there, we're talking actually have a picture of Rob's finger at uh, the salt call of Everest, which is 8,000 metres, and his saturation was 61%. And he was well enough to take the picture himself.
0: 61%.
2: 61%. And was, was that
0: on, on air, or was that with supplemental oxygen?
1: That's just on air, uh, ambient air, and uh, a pulse rate of 90. Um, yeah. So just uh, lying down at rest. Lying down, warm fingers, there's no, you know, obviously, all the confounding issues of, of pulse yeah. oximetry. Um, the interesting thing, just on a, a one litre flow rate using one of the oxygen masks at rest, you can actually get it up to uh, the mid
0: nineties, and so shows you yeah. you're on that sort of steep part of the curve. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So small changes can make huge differences. Difference.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: And Marie Christelle, in terms of um, perhaps more cardiovascular problems, you, you did mention uh, number one the acclimatization process, and then number two, I think we talked, we touched on briefly high altitude. Pulmonary edema. In terms of the acclimatization process, if you if you're doing it by the book, nice and slowly, sleeping is it sleeping low? Go high in the day and then back down again. That's correct. What what's actually happening on a physiological level? Just just a broad overview of of what's
2: happening from a cardiology point of view. What's interesting is that the higher you go, um, the higher your resting heart rate goes. okay? Okay, so resting heart rate increases at high altitude. However, that being said, it's been shown that the maximal heart rate decreases at high altitude. It's in order to kind of protect the heart and lengthen the diastole a little bit. Okay. So we actually don't have a big margin. So personally, my resting heart rate at base camp is probably around 100, and my maximal heart rate is probably around 140. So actually, I don't have that many beads to play with. And the higher I go, the higher my resting heart rate goes and the lower my maximal heart rate goes. So I think from a cardiology point of view, that's something quite mm-hmm. important to mention. And as you did mention, we see an increase in pulmonary pressure. What happens with altitude, uh, under hypoxic condition, usually we see mainly vasodilation, of most of the blood vessels, except in the pulmonary vasculature, where we see the constriction. It's in order to decrease the mismatch. Um, of course, there's a big difference from one person to another, but what we see is, in general, the pulmonary, mean pulmonary pressure rise up to even three times what it is at sea level.
1: Three times? Yeah, yeah.
2: so that has massive implications on the right ventricular function, on adaptation, acclimatization, so right. we have to be aware of that. Um, the slower we go up, the less increase we will see in pulmonary pressure. Um, and as well, it has been shown that the higher the pulmonary pressure, the more likely you are to suffer from acute mountain sickness and pulmonary edema. And uh, pulmonary edema at high altitude is not caused by left ventricular dysfunction as it usually is mm-hmm. at sea level. Mm-hmm. Up there, it's mainly a change in the permeability of the capillary block vessels. So we have to treat that and approach that in a totally different way than we would at sea level. At high altitude, we don't treat that with diuretics, we right. treat that with, like, oxygen is the first thing to do. Then we have to bring the patient as low as possible, okay. and we have hypoxic, uh, not hypoxic actually, we have the Gammoth bag, yes. which is a bag that we can put the person in, it's totally hermetic, and then we pump the bag to increase the pressure. So it kind of lowers artificially the person down, and it can be extremely helpful in a risky okay. situation.
0: And are there any other drugs I, I read that you sometimes use, Philippine
2: Yeah, there, there's a lot of drugs that we can use. Yeah. Uh, the most popular one is acetazolamide, okay. uh, which is the one that is used in order to prevent acute mountain sickness, and we use that in the treatment as well. But if we want to be more specific about pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary edema, uh, we do give nifedipine. It's probably the drug of choice. We've got a few data with sildenafil um, as well. Uh, we give oxygen, as I mentioned mm. before, and the key is really to bring the patient down.
0: Okay. And if a patient has, a, let's say, a severe episode of, of high-altitude pulmonary edema, yeah. is that the expedition over for them, or is it possible to kind of go to a lower-altitude recover for a while and, and try again, or is it generally advised that that
2: I mean it's a really good question the thing I mean it has been described people having severe episode of Mm. pulmonary edema going Mm. back down to base camp to rest for a few days and then up again and they manage to summit without any problem so it's not an absolute thing however if someone is very unwell unless we can identify a reason why it happened and it's usually extremely difficult Mm. sometimes it might be because of viral illness that kind of puts you down a little bit and then you become more susceptible to different things exactly and if you're not acclimatised so unless there's something you can change personally and we'd be extremely reticent for that person to carry on the climb because after all the mountain's still going to be there we want to be as safe as possible knowing that even though we've got helicopters and everything it's quite hard to treat someone medically in such an environment.
1: And and just to, to, I think, an important add-on in terms of the the spectrum of climbing Everest or even trekking to base camp where you've invested time, money and effort, people feel they they deserve the right to continue where possible. And I think uh, for a long expedition of two months in duration, where taking a week out wouldn't necessarily prevent you from going safely back to the summit, people often want to continue and so that leaves you in a bit of a a dilemma because we have treated someone much better than perhaps 20 years ago they are under the perception that they could be treated again should they get uh, unwell uh, subsequently so that can lead us into a dangerous compromise between our our medical uh, insight uh, and the patient's or or client's expectations Mm. so it's a it's a difficult balance and i think you know uh, Commercial guiding and commercial mountaineering, in particular, has um, has come under the spotlight for perhaps pushing the envelope and pushing people into situations where you know sadly people have either lost limbs or lives uh, as a result of poor decision making. So it's something that's you know there are constantly balances and pressures uh, on us in clinical practice, whether yeah. we're at sea level or higher up, and it's yeah. it's getting that balance right yeah, and not being not compromising your position for whatever monetary reason.
0: Yeah, and in terms of susceptibility to, to let's say, the cardiovascular effects of altitude. Uh, you mentioned yesterday that often uh, physical fitness, pre-existing physical fitness, isn't necessarily a good predictor of, of how well you're going to do on the mountain side. Yeah, no. You said you've seen people who are not in amazing tip-top condition go up to the top of, let's say, Kilimanjaro with no problems, but other people really suffer, even if they're triathletes.
2: Yeah, it is very hard to predict who yeah. is going to do well at high altitude. Like, you're either male or female, old or young, and that doesn't really change anything. Um, The only predictors that are relatively well accepted are if you've been to high altitude before and you've done well you're likely to be doing well again. Although that's not uh, like something that is certain, you're likely to be doing well again. There's also a few tests you can do at sea level under hypoxic condition, that may give you an idea. And we're still trying to find out how much it predicts altitude sickness. Okay. But besides that, what we tend to see is that people who are extremely fit at sea level, who are like running marathons and stuff, they're used to go relatively fast. So they tend to probably not do deaclimatization as well as someone who prefers to go a bit slower. So they're actually feeling great for the first few days, but they eventually don't feel that well. And right. we tend to see that a bit more with people who are very active and want to go fast.
0: So it may be that they're almost bringing it on themselves because they're super fit, they can get ahead of the group. Exactly. And rather than taking yeah, their time, yeah, and, I don't
2: think it's a risk factor per se. Like yeah. it's great to be fit. You yeah. just need to still go through the acclimatisation process. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'd really back that up. And in terms of anecdotal experience of seeing probably two or three hundred people going to base camp on, on treks over the years, people who who want to go quicker in general have that that they're that personality that needs to be at the front and and have more difficulty relaxing and slowing down and and, and as a result they make themselves more vulnerable to the very thing that they're trying to avoid or think they are going to avoid by being fitter and more driven and so actually um, this is one of the things I was touching on regarding psychology being an important aspect of climbing and I I think that's often overlooked in terms of the physical analysis of why someone does well or not at altitude and in fact from climbing Everest 8 times I can say uh, with with a uh, level of insight that the psychology of climbing high actually is probably accounts for the most uh, is the highest factor or most significant factor in success really That's very interesting. Um, and so I think our physiologies are all slightly different but in fact with two months and supplemental oxygen most of us are liable to have a, a good chance of climbing Everest if we're physically well and don't have a, conco- a concomitant infection or illness uh, and so it's that those, those fine lines, but the differences between success and failure often come down to actually how you're feeling in yourself in general, as in yes. more psychologically uh, balanced yeah. or not. And uh, those sort of things play into the success of coming back to altitude. If you do well before, I think the reasons why you do well again is that you're more comfortable having a mild headache, or more yeah. comfortable going a bit slower, and um, you, you're you're more knowledgeable about what knowledgeable about how your body performs and and. and, and for, for people who go for the first time, it's that, that fear of the unknown that drives them perhaps to go faster or una- unable to control themselves and yeah. it leads them into, into problems or can do.
0: So, uh, just to wrap up, both of you, what, what's next? Are you, I know you were planning some research this climbing season on Everest, which for a number of reasons didn't go ahead, but you were planning to do halter monitoring at various stages up the mountain because I know you can get, you showed yesterday, a very alarming halter monitor from a, a normally fit and well. Uh, cardiologist at, at base camp, but unfortunately had several runs of asymptomatic ventricular tachycardia with a structurally normal heart. So you you were planning to to continue that kind of work? Is that is that the idea next year, or is that still? Uh,
2: yeah, it's still. I mean, we were planning on climbing Everest this year and doing some research project, one with ECG, one with alter. Uh, unfortunately, because of the avalanche that killed sixteen Sherpas, uh, we did not carry on the expedition. No. Therefore, we didn't do the research project we were supposed to do. Uh, of course, we would love to go back. Um, that depends on many things, though. So we we still haven't still made lots up. Of yeah. It. Still lots of unanswered
0: questions. Yeah, there's a
2: lot of things to consider. It's two months away. There's risk involved as well. So we're
1: that's, that's the politically correct answer that I would normally give. We don't
2: know.
1: Yeah, we're hopefully focused on the sub three hour marathon, and uh, we're doing an, uh, an, uh, an Iron Man, aren't we? In in Cozumel in Mexico. So Mexico is the kind of uh, the southern or well, the Mediterranean for Canadians. So uh, okay. that's where we're headed for uh, for November. Fantastic for relaxation and <laughs> recuperation. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for, for joining me for this episode of the HEART podcast. It's been fantastic to chat to you both. My name is James Rudd, and I'm signing off from uh, Manchester from the British Cardiovascular Society meeting. Uh, do check the HEART website soon for uh, further episodes of the uh,